Oasis. Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this beautiful world. My name is Scott Allen, and I am the host of Phronesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. I am an associate professor of management at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio, USA. I'm an author, an entrepreneur, a speaker, a nonprofit founder, and the host of two podcasts. I'm also a husband and dad of three. You just heard from Kate, my daughter, who wrote and performed the Phronesis intro. Phronesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion on all things leadership. My guests are scholars and practitioners, and we cover timely, relevant topics and incorporate practical tips designed to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. Now, I am proud to share that Phronesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, an association that is near and dear to my heart. ILA brings together leaders and those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge and practice for a better world. Learn more at ilaglobalnetwork.org. If you like what we're up to, please click subscribe so you can stay up to date as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others. And now, today's show. Denny, I'm going to go old school on you right now. Everybody, we've got Denny Roberts and Dr. Denny Roberts. Denny, when I think of you, I think of um, like stationary bikes, and I think of Ron Heifetz. (laughs) We both, for listeners, we lived in Oxford, Ohio, both of us. And I would go work out, and Denny would always be reading an academic article on the bicycle, or he'd be reading the latest Ron Heifetz book, or the latest... The latest Burns, I think it was Transformational Leadership, I came across you once. And I'd be on the Stairmaster, and you'd be on the bike. And every day, we'd kind of say hello, and we would we would uh, talk a little bit about leadership. And it's so good to have you here. I'm so excited for you to be with me today, just for our listeners really quickly. And then he'll introduce himself. Uh, Denny's many things. He has been the Associate Vice President of Student Affairs at Miami University. He has served as a board member of the International Leadership Association. He was the AVP of Education for the Qatar Foundation, so he has global student affairs experience. And most recently, he's been helping with this task force put together by the ILA really looking at standards and principles for programs. And he'll tell us a little bit more about that. Denny, what blanks do I need to fill in there? You're a grandfather. Yeah. yeah, You're in Chicagoland. Unfortunately, you're wearing a Chicago Cubs t-shirt, which my (laughs) Cleveland Indians, well, that hurts a couple years back. (laughs) Yeah. And it's so funny that you would start us with uh, our first encounters at the recreation center at Miami because uh, Scott, I still do that. I still sit on the stationary bike and I still read stuff. <laughs> the the thing that's so awesome is I don't have to carry books anymore because yes. I have a Kindle. So everything's on Kindle now. So it might, it makes swiping the pages much easier. I can highlight more uh, more easily. I mean, it just works a whole lot better. So thank God technology has moved us forward a bit. But yeah, I'm still doing the same stupid stuff. I'm, I really am. Uh, totally amazing. But yeah, the, the Miami days were amazing. And you were so unique because you were one of the few people that I knew just sort of casually, but you would just dive right in. 
there was never shallow conversation with Scott. <laughs> uh, it was always, let's go to the essence of this, you know, and uh, it was always kind of fun. And uh, uh, I, I love those kind of conversations. So thank you for, uh, for those old days and for the current. It's great. Yeah. Well, so yeah. tell us a little bit about some of what I missed. I mean, right. a, a good portion, especially after Miami University, a good portion of your career was was spent abroad. And I think that was a pretty, at least as I read your blog as you were over there, that was a pretty transformational experience for you. Is that, it was, is it that was accurate? Profound, really profound. I mean, it was a, a turning point for me. And you know, I've I've carried a lot of common themes throughout my life, you know, and even, you know, going back to high school and undergraduate days and so forth. I had this kind of fascination with with what leadership was. And very clearly in high school, I was not one of the cool kids because I was a geek. I was a musician. Yeah. So like all the athletes were the cool guys, right? Yeah. And the, the cool girls were, you know, pardon the language, but they were the cheerleaders and all that kind of stuff too. And I was never in those groups, but I always kind of looked at them and I thought, wow, that's really interesting. How do they get to do that sort of thing? Hmm. And then when I went to Colorado State for my undergraduate degree in music, uh, I got involved with founding a fraternity. Uh, and then eventually I got involved in uh, student paraprofessional roles. So like orientation student leader, residence hall student leader, that kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, for whatever reason at the university level, I was able to just be me uh, and I didn't have to be a cool kid anymore. I found uh, that I could, as well. I found I that just, as well. I could be me, yep. you know? And so I was really freed and that's when my fascination with leadership really, really started to dig mm. in. And uh, I, it was just a very empowering moment to realize that literally, you know, I could understand leadership. I was capable of leadership. And begin to see myself that way. And I know I carry <clears throat> white male privilege in terms of uh, I was, uh, it was easier, you know, for me than it would be for many cultural groups or for women to yeah. engage in leadership. But I still felt marginalized at the beginning yeah. and then gained greater and greater efficacy as I had uh, my various experiences. So it was a very powerful period that really shaped my view of what was possible in terms of leadership. You know, it was, it was a similar story for me. I was not a musician. I wish I would have been my only musician days. I played the baritone and that was not the, the sexiest instrument by any stretch of the <laughs> imagination. Right. You know, right. <laughs> so even in the band, I'm like down five or six runs. I'm sorry if you played the baritone, <laughs> No, 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 no. Yeah. but you know, it was, it was for me, the setting for me, as you know, was was Greek life, where really it was the first time I'd ever taken on any type of leadership role and had had never identified as someone who could lead. And so it was a very transformational time. And then my time in Oxford, reading, and I, I just set up a podcast with Jim Kuzas, and I'm so excited, Denny, because I can't wait to have a conversation with him. You may remember one of my first bosses, Bob Cottrell, took us through the Leadership Challenge. Absolutely. And that's yeah. where, for me, it really, the light bulbs went off that this is this is an area that people study. This is an area that people explore. So finding you at Miami University 
And even some of the lunches that we would have and we would talk about this, because as I was starting my PhD program, we would we would talk. And it was just really, really meaningful to have someone as engaged in the in the topic as you. Mm-hmm. And and again, I I remember it like yesterday. Like Heifetz's oh, book sure. had just come out and you're you're reading right. it. Yeah. <laughs> you see well, you'd know, say, you should read this. Yep. <laughs> And see, what's so central on this, and I think it's really central not only to the identity that probably you and I share, but it is also, I think, characteristic of people who are more inclined to really engage in leadership, and that's curiosity. I mean, it's yeah. a it's a small, it's not a big word, it's not complicated, but uh, it's simply being curious about your surroundings and about other people and about other cultures and that's what uh, is just a huge spark in terms of allowing us, I think, to to want to do something bigger and better. Yeah. Uh, and you you asked about my international experience. I mean, I didn't even have a passport until 2005. Wow. Uh, and in 2005, unique uh, a unique opportunity that Miami had was this Luxembourg campus, which uh, is in Diefendange, uh, Luxembourg, and uh, I went over as, quote, visiting a scholar. So I taught. And then I also wrote the book that came out in 2007, The Deeper Learning and Leadership, uh, during that period of time. But what I did, and it was the the most efficient writing exercise of, of, of my entire life experience, I had a goal every week. I took all my materials with me to Luxembourg. My goal was to complete a chapter a week. And, oh wow! And if I could complete a chapter a week, then I got—I had a Eurail pass, and I could go anywhere in Europe I wanted to go. <laughs> guess, guess how many deadlines I missed? Zero. Zero. <laughs> Zero. Because you uh, wanted to see Bruges. <laughs> I did. I wanted to see everything. So yeah. I would literally work my butt off from Sunday night to Thursday night, and then I'd jump on a train on Friday morning. And I'd go somewhere in Europe, you know, and I, I went to Berlin, and to Vienna, and to Paris, and, you know, and to Bruges. And yep. uh, I, I mean, I went to all of these just crazy places, completely going outside of my comfort zone every yeah. time. Because most of the time, I was one of the few uh, single language speakers in most environments I was in, you know, so most people were speaking French and German and, and various languages around me. Well, I only had English. Yeah. So I, I had to kind of stumble through that, but man, it, it gave me a trust in humanity. Uh, it gave me uh, 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 an incredible experience of just mm-hmm. curiosity and expanding beyond myself. And that's what ultimately led me to want to go to Qatar, you know, yeah. and when I was offered the opportunity to go over there, I jumped at it, even though it was an incredibly difficult period of time in my family. And, you know, I had to leave my wife in Oxford, Ohio, you know, and yeah. she stayed back. And uh, those were not easy times from a personal point of view, but man, from a developmental point of view and really expanding my, uh, my world uh, perspective, it was incredible and yeah. uh, really contributed a lot. Well, I want to go, I want to go to, gosh, I'm going to get the year wrong, Denny, but you wrote a book or you were a a lead author on, was it 1981 or 82 where you started to 81. Right. Okay. And I have a copy of it. It's at 
on campus. But that was one of the first publications I came across that really started to try and define some of our terminology that that I came across. And, you know, there's been all these arguments back and forth about defining leadership and how we define that. And you can go to Joseph Rost and you can go to any number of other scholars who have explored that conversation. And one thing I think we both have a passion for is maybe not precision, but can we get to a general place of understanding what we're actually trying to do, <laughs> right? Absolutely. What Absolutely. are we trying to develop and what does that mean? And yeah. so you and I have had that. That was the first time. So I'd love to go there, how how that conversation came along. Then you and I wrote an, an article in tw- 2011, and I'd love to get some of your contemporary thinking of the topic because I think having... Again, I'm not interested in having it buttoned up and that I am correct and this is this is what's right, quote unquote. But I think we have to do a better job of having some baseline understandings of what we're trying to accomplish in certain situations. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that whole exercise uh, that resulted in the 1981 book, <clears throat> the Student Leadership Programs in Higher Education, uh, it came about as a result of... Uh, First of all, my being, I had gone to the University of Maryland as, as an assistant director of orientation, showed up on July 1st, 1973, and my boss quit. Uh, so you. <laughs> so all of a sudden, I'm acting director, right? Yeah, and yeah. Um, a guy by the name of Bud Thomas hired me to do director permanently then after that. But then within a couple of years, he and another guy whose name was Drew Bagwell, uh, who is huge in fraternity work, mm-hmm. uh, decided that we needed to do something at Maryland, more specifically, related to leadership. And uh, so they had seen me cultivate leadership in the orientation programs and thought that I would be a good prospect for this. So uh, they invited me to do it, and I said, sure, I'll do it. Yeah. Uh, and I went to the American College Personnel Association meeting that spring of 1976, and there was this meeting of activities and, and Greek life people all together. Yeah. And there was uh, just a general question that was put out to the audience. They, a lot of people had been talking about doing stuff in relation to leadership learning, but nobody had models. Nobody mm-hmm. had anything that they, or a shared language that they yep. could actually use to deepen the work. So they asked, is there anybody out there that would be willing to share a task force uh, that would basically dig into these ideas? So I was stupid enough and curious enough that I raised my hand. And so I ended up being the task force chair. And what happened was that there was just a really awesome group of people uh, that I worked with in terms of doing a snail mail survey of campuses across the country in terms of what they were doing in leadership. Wow. And then we, we built that, those hard, hard copy files, if you can believe it. Oh. And then we sorted through it and came up with a variety of kind of conclusions that were exactly like what you're saying. They weren't the end-all, be-all, but they were the conversation starters to help to get leadership educators at least kind of on the same wavelength so that we could at least figure out whether we were talking about the same thing or not. Yes. And... uh so that book, you know, I, I edited it and offered a couple of chapters within it. And, uh, 
you know, it was published by American College Personnel Association, so it didn't get a lot of wide distribution in the academic world, mm-hmm. even though, and it's ironic, uh, I don't know if you remember where Barbara Kellerman in the professionalizing leadership mentioned my name, you know, yeah. and I, I'm reading along and I'm going like, you know, I'm, I'm getting really mad, right? Because she's talking about training, education, and development. I'm going, damn it, hey. Barbara. You hey. know, those, are, those are our ideas. Yes. And, then, and then finally she says, oh, and there was this guy, Denny Roberts, that <laughs> yes. did some work, something on this, right? Yeah, yeah. And so uh, it was just incredible that she even knew that it existed. She didn't know the year. And, you know, I know she's never read the book. I love her to death. And she's a good, good friend and just a really wonderful person. But uh, she's not read the book. You know, she knows she <laughs> It's a hard and book to find. I had to work to it get It is that. hard to yeah, find. Yeah. Actually, the last time I looked down on, uh, on eBay, it was like going for $150. <laughs> exactly. Like it was probably worth $12. I don't know what it was worth. But uh, so that book really did start to try to create <clears throat> some language yep. and some aspiration because for the most part, what people were doing was really kind of a hodgepodge approach, yep. you know, and it's a combination of retreats and speakers and those kinds of things. And there really was not much to it. So we came up with the training education and development idea as being a way to think about kind of the depth of what you might do. Yep. And uh, I won't, you know, try to even define the, the the particular words because that isn't what's important now. Yeah. What's important is to have a way to talk about what are we trying to accomplish here, and particularly when you look at the development aspect of it. What we now know from research is that uh, true leadership learning is this lifelong journey. Yes, uh, that combines. Knowledge, experience, experience, experimentation, risk-taking, identity development. It, it's a whole constellation of things yep. that are required in order for true leadership development to occur. And Barbara's book, you know, Professionalizing Leadership, talks about the military as being one example that has that long-term commitment. Yep. And unfortunately, in higher education and you know, this is where my Deeper Learning and Leadership book is important. In Deeper Learning and Leadership, I not only talk about training, education, development, but I talk about this holistic journey of leadership yeah. learning, and I also critique higher education. Hmm. Uh, and I critique it from the standpoint that I think higher education has become uh, very bureaucratized, yeah. uh, and it's siloed. As a result of that, you know, and it's not only siloed across administrative units, but it's siloed in terms of disciplines. It's siloed in so, so many ways that really makes uh, all sorts of kinds of learning difficult, but particularly where it's related to leadership learning. One of the other things that we know from the multi-institution study of leadership is that it isn't a leadership course or being a leadership major that makes the difference. It's a whole succession of related ideas that affect the student experience. Yeah. And that's really what I think, I mean, that's where we fall short in higher education. I mean, time and time again, when I talk to my colleagues across the country, when I consult, 
I find that what they're battling is either disciplinary silos or administrative silos that keep campuses from actually achieving what they want to to accomplish. Hmm. It's a fascinating problem, and I don't I don't know that we have it nailed yet. What I am happy about is that the process that you mentioned earlier, which is the task force in ILA yeah. to devise standards, which it's also interesting that we ended up not using the word standard. Yeah. Because we just couldn't go there. Uh, the group was not ready to go to a standard, but what we did agree to was principles. Hmm. Uh, and so uh, going back to our language, Scott, in 2011, yeah. we talk, talked about a principled universalism. That's the yeah. term we used, which yep. is kind of a high-fluting word or phrase for let's get uh, a basic agreement about what we're trying to do, and then let's have a conversation about it. Yes. And really, the ILA paper, as it starts to come out, and I, I, I pray that people will understand that as a principled universalistic approach, yeah, rather than nitpicking and trying to define all the details that sometimes get us tripped up. And I don't want to ignore the fact that, yeah, details are important. I understand that. Yeah. But um, as a person who, in my entire life, in terms of work and writing and consulting, has always been about being a translator and integrator. And yes. That's, that's who I've always been. Yep. Uh, and I just think that it's that we have to work harder to integrate what we're doing and to translate what we're doing. And especially when you talk about an international kind of a context, I mean, uh, the differences around the world and different cultures are vast yeah. and you can't dictate internationally a model that is going to be in opposition to a specific culture. You just can't do that. Yeah. So, uh, uh, the, the whole process has been amazing. Really has I literally just had a flashback to a meal that we had in Oxford. And it was as I was beginning my PhD program. And it's really fascinating because this is one of those examples of like a seed that you probably, this is what, 1998, 1999, 2000 maybe, and probably 2000, 2001. Maybe it was 2002. <laughs> <Whatever>. <laughs> I keep going up in years. Yeah. But it was interesting because I think you made a, a similar statement to that. I was talking about all of the different theories and everyone feeling like they're right. And you said something to the effect of, look, what's, what's important is that there's a general agreement and that this is pragmatic and it's translated so that it's useful for people to right. actually integrate into their practice Absolutely. and you can get lost in these arguments of semantics but and so it it was really cool to hear denny because at the time i think when you get into some of your academic work you you feel like well i don't know i don't know how to explain this i put it into words right now but the theory part of it is highly valued and the the being a translator piece is is not necessarily as valued. It's not as accessible in some ways. There aren't journals that you can have a position at a research one and be publishing in a highly pragmatic, uh, 
journal. You know, it's the the whole system pushes you in a certain direction, which I think at times, because, you know, I've said this a, a lot of times to colleagues, if we gave the average CEO right now, the Academy of Management Journal, the latest issue, they would look at that and say, what in the world is this? <laughs> so I always felt a little bit lost because I love the theory. I love it. Mm-hmm. But I also wonder how do we make sure that this actually translates and is useful for people to access and inform their day to day? Cause it's hard work leading. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, and, and I know that academics want things to translate. You know, I mean, there's at least in, in my, my soul, I've always wanted, you, you don't write just to be, you know, getting it into print and as a, as an ego gratification sort of thing, you want people to hear it. Yeah. Uh, you want it to make a difference. So I know that academics want, you know, their, their insights to be shared. But what is so sad about that is that sometimes as we create these competitive academic environments where you try to outdo each other mm. uh, in terms of your scholarship and the reach of your scholarship, sometimes we lose then the potential to be generative scholars mm-hmm. and build on each other's work and actually contribute to advancing in a in a reasonable progression that takes us to really some profound understandings. And the academic community really does value the the independent scholarship and the identification of something that is highly cited and that kind of thing. And you know, I mean that my work, you know, I mean, I've, I've been involved in quite a bit of writing, yeah. but you know, my work has not saturated the field of leadership studies in nearly the sort of way as a typical faculty member would, you know, mm. one of my, one of my other favorite colleagues is Susan Comavez and she and I have collaborated on a couple of things and we probably email each other on a weekly basis. Uh, you know, so we're in a lot of contact and Susan chose a totally different path. Mm. Her path was to really center on the the scholarship of the advancement of of leadership learning. Yeah, and uh, she's you know she I, I I haven't looked at Google Scholar lately, but I can't imagine that she isn't way way up there <laughs> yes. in terms of citations. Uh, and I love her work and the thing that probably means so much to me is that she values the contribution that I've made as yeah. a translator integrator. Yep. And even though my saturation of scholarship isn't nearly of the level that she has achieved, uh, I'm very, very proud and satisfied that I've kind of walked the path of that middle ground, yeah. which is, uh, both being a practitioner as well as a scholar. I mean, yeah. I've, I've tried to kind of be both, but you do kind of get lost in the wilderness in between, you know? Yes. Uh, yeah. And, I'm not John Maxwell, but I'm also not, you know, Bruce Avolio. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Where am I here? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I want to land on two final like threads of conversation if possible. One, what were some reflections on, the, the task force and what should 
listeners be kind of interested in knowing a little bit more about and, and what, and it could just be the process that something that's a couple things that stood out for you about the process. Right. And then also what year did you join the ILA and how have you seen things? I just had a conversation with Sin Cherry and that's going to be released probably next week, that, that podcast episode. And it was fun to hear her talk about kind of her reflections on the International Leadership Association. So I do want to get there as well. How have you seen things grow and develop over the last few decades um, based on where it started, where you entered at least? Because I imagine it was fairly early. Well, when when I entered, I mean, as I said, uh, in terms of the, the leadership educator world, I entered it in 1976, but that was yeah. primarily through student affairs people. Yeah. And for the following two decades after yeah. that, I kept looking for ways to connect with academics. And so uh, I did it in a variety of ways. John Gardner had a wonderful series of meetings that I participated yep. in. Uh, there was a uh, an initiative that was headed by Irving Spitzberg. I don't know if you even know that name. I don't. And, I don't. And Spitzberg, I think, I can't remember if that was ACE. I think it was ACE. Okay. He had a, a grant to pull, basically, scholars together on leadership. And in all of these things, I kept saying, people, talk. Talk to each other. <laughs> I kept saying it. Nobody would listen. Nobody <laughs> would listen. And then all of a sudden, I show up at this kind of bizarre meeting in Los Angeles. And Sin Cherry was the kind of local arrangements chair. But guess who was the, the intellectual chair and the convener of the meeting? Barbara Kellum. Yeah. And uh, Barbara, in her wonderful way, you know, just was very, very provocative in the meeting and, and just did wonderful stuff in terms of really stimulating a, a, a significant conversation. And my blood was boiling the entire time hmm. because there was very little recognition of the contribution of the co-curricular or the student affairs uh, wow. and leadership. So what did I do? I went up directly after the meeting and I said, Barbara, Hey, stop it. Hey, <laughs> we're out here. We're doing this. Yeah. And she said, well, help me, help me fix that. Yeah. And I said, I will. Uh, and so that was minus one yeah. ILA. Yeah. And so the first ILA then occurred the following year. And Barbara asked me to pull together names and addresses for my network of student leadership educators that were primarily in the co-curricular arena. Yeah. And I did that. And uh, then I contributed that to the first uh, meeting. Lots of our friends showed up, which was just wonderful. And, you know, they're still there. Yeah. And ILA actually is the first place where there has been uh, at least a, a home base for both student affairs, leadership educators, as well as leadership scholars. Yeah. And uh, that has been just wonderfully uh, empowering to me, gratifying to me. I mean, at least we're having those conversations. And so I actually served as the first chair of the member interest group that was for, quote, leadership educators. So oh, I did nice. that for several years. And then, uh, and then you know, I, I mean, my problem in this kind of 
integrator and kind of chameleon and I don't even know what you want to call me, but <laughs> I get I get so interested in so many ideas that I uh, I get distracted. I always come back to leadership, but I did get distracted after doing the ILA thing for several years and then I uh, kind of wandered away and then I wandered back. Mm. Uh, literally uh, came back in a, a, a later time. So I missed a couple of the meetings, but I've been to most of the ILA meetings yeah. and have always uh, benefited from from being a part of that network. So, you know, and I, I don't know, frankly, why Sin, you know, invited me to serve on that task force group. I, I guess, you know, our history goes way back. She and I knew each other when we were back in Texas days, you know, yeah. so this is ancient history. And, uh, no reflection on our age or anything because sin's very young. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, she invited me to be a part of the task group. And, uh, and the, the, the group that was assembled, actually, were, most of the people were not known to me. I knew a few, yeah. but mo- most of them were not. And, uh, you know, the, the process was, uh, you know, a series of meetings we had intended to do face-to-face, but obviously the, the pandemic prohibited that. So we did everything uh, virtual. Okay. And uh, we worked pretty hard. We had like subgroups that worked on different sections of it. And the particular section that I worked on, uh, which you will not be surprised at this, was uh, the conceptual framework. Yeah. Which is kind of the, 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 big, the big picture sorts of things. So the, the principles document actually has five categories. First is context. Second is conceptual framework. The rest of it is, uh, I think, uh, learning and education and then uh, – the last, the fifth dimension is uh, research and assessment. What is the fourth dimension? I can't remember it right off, mm. my ha- right off the top of my head. But it has four dif- five different sections, and we had task groups that worked in each of those five different sections. We put the paper together and then tried to integrate throughout. And, uh, you know, as a, as a document, when that is released to ILA for discussion, it really is intended to be a catalyst. Nice. Uh, and, you know, I, I hope that the principles do survive, you know, the review process and the revision process, because I think they have a lot of merit. But surely, you know, there's going to be a lot of revision to it and improvement as well. So I think it, it's an ongoing journey, one that has to be done. And that yep. was one of the really compelling things for us as a task group was that, you know, we've got to do a better job of leadership uh Learning, we we've we've got to document our outcomes. We have to yes. know what we're trying to accomplish. Yes, we have to have focus in our efforts. I mean, we need those kinds of things. And although standards would have been a possibility, the standards probably would have fired up more resistance than it would have been worth. Yeah. So therefore, identifying principles was the best path. Uh, I think. Eventually, you know, there may be a day when there will be a standard that will yeah. be created. But I, I think that our, uh, we will need to advance, you know, our, our understandings uh, a little bit more deeply before we're, we're ready to go to that level. Yeah. But at least for now, the principles, I think, should be a really, really helpful conversation for ILA and for others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, my conversation with Barbara Kellerman, it may have been last September, Maybe it was last summer sometime. I had not read Professionalizing Leadership. And that, I, I thought that was a really, again, provocative, interesting right. read that just really makes you think about 
what we're doing. Right. And I think for me, that's the most important. Are we intentional about what we're trying to accomplish? Exactly. Are we measuring our ability to accomplish that? Yeah. <laughs> and in other industries like you know, pilot training or surgeon, uh, there's efforts to do that. This is a different context. So there's different nuances. It's not an apples to apples comparison by any sense, but you know, how do we, how do we up our game a little bit from maybe where we've been? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and, and Barbara has been so effective over the years to, to, to provoke, you know, and yep. uh, she, she doesn't necessarily seek uh, consensus. I mean, that's, that is rarely her purpose. You know, her, her purpose is most often to bring a new perspective. I mean, I just read not too long ago, the, uh, the new book on uh, leaders who lust. I don't know if oh. you've read that. I uh, haven't. Is it, has it been released? Oh yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, she was, when I, when I spoke with her, she was working on that. Yeah, or was... no, it's, it's out and it's, it's very provocative. <laughs> so. <laughs> well, she was also working on the follow-up to that, which is the enablers, which was, right. you know, exploring some of uh, Donald Trump's circle is what right, she was yeah. investigating at that point. So, yeah. She does good stuff. Really, really good stuff. Hmm. Well, Denny, as we wind down, maybe share with listeners some things that you've been reading or listening to or streaming lately. doesn't have to have anything to do with leadership, but just something right. that listeners may be interested in. What right. stood out for you? Yeah. Well, as you mentioned, uh, as we started off, uh, I, I have this crazy blog that I've been doing since 2005, and I don't even know how many entries are on the crazy thing at this point. I mean, there's a lot of them. Uh, some years have been more productive than others. Uh, but, uh, you know, I review a lot of different things. I, I do review new documents in uh, the leadership world. But I also look at issues of spirituality. I look at uh, lots of music. You know, I'm uh, because of my background in, in, uh, in music and undergraduate degree in music, I love reading about composers and how they came to their ideas and how they exhibited leadership in their own sort of way. Hmm. And uh, uh, for anyone that has not really studied music much, uh, I mean, there's lots of resources out there that are available that are very, uh, very accessible. It's easy to understand what is being communicated. And musicians are a fantastic example of comp complicated leadership. Yeah. You know, they really are because you're dealing with uh, trying to create a voice to so that others will understand. You're trying to bring disparate instruments and perspectives together. Yeah. Uh, you're trying to push the envelope without going so far that you turn people off, mm -hmm. you know, which is back to a Heifetz idea, yep. uh, you know, uh, from the balcony sort of thing. And so... I do a lot in terms of, of music on, on my blog, the, the Pursuing Leadership by Denny. And, uh, you know, some of the composers that I've read most recently, I read a biography of Sibelius, which was wonderful. Hmm. I read a biography of Grieg, uh, Rachmaninoff, Debussy, Ravel. I mean, these are all composers uh, that I play, you know, yeah. on piano as well as I, as I listen to. But every one of those composers that I just mentioned pushed the envelope mm. in very different sorts of ways. Yeah. Uh, and they provided leadership 
that uh, really exemplified their whole cultural you know, world. Uh, so I, I do a lot of that area. Some of the podcasts I follow, uh, actually, uh, my oldest daughter, who you may remember, yep. Evan, yep. Uh, she works for SAP, which is the international software yep. uh, company out of Germany. And uh, she's a part of something that SAP is doing called SAP Insights. Okay. And they've created these great little video uh, programs called Blank Canvas. Huh. And they took some research uh, and uh, kind of put it in action in these Blank Canvas videos that explores what they call the passionates. Huh. Uh, and the passionates are, are people of all ages that uh, tend to want to make a difference in the world. And their research indicates that the passionates are actually more present in the, the Gen X or the millennial uh, world. And the important issue there is that what SAP is saying to everybody that relies on their products is you better understand who you're selling your products to. Wow. You need to understand this. Yeah. And you are selling into a market that's full of passionates. Hmm. And, and the quicker you understand that, the more successful you will be. I love these podcasts. Okay, so interesting. Google it, SAP Insights, and yeah. it's blank canvas is what okay. it is. Very, very interesting. Uh, they've also done another one on Ian Bremmer. Uh, I don't know if you know of Ian Bremmer, uh, but he's an internationalist. Uh, Park Kana, he's another internationalist. Okay. So I follow him. And then I, I love Trevor Noah. <laughs> so <laughs> so that's, that's my eclectic uh, group of uh, kind of things that I listen to in terms of the the streaming world besides you know all the stuff that i do with with music so. what was the last concert you went to oh wow jeez because this is sad i mean it's been so long since i've been to a concert it would have been i mean it would have been a chicago symphony orchestra concert but uh i'm i'm embarrassed that i can't remember exactly <laughs> what it was i mean the last season that cso had was pretty uh rock star uh period of time i mean they did uh, uh a concert version of verdi's uh, aida uh which again is a fascinating study in leadership yeah uh, they uh also did uh oh gosh what was it well i i i i can't remember the concert schedule but they they do fabulous work and you know one of the really wonderful minds in terms of the arts and culture world uh, is uh, Ricardo Moody, who is hmm. the, the conductor of the Chicago Symphony. And uh, he's all about connecting. Hmm. And uh, he connects to different cultures, different people. And uh, he is deeply passionate about you know, trying to use music to, to bridge. And that's one of the things that I value most these days is trying to bridge, trying to bridge across culture and age and socioeconomic, every, every kind of distance that we have. We need hmm. to bridge it all. Trying to bridge. Maybe the, maybe that's what we'll call the episode, Denny yeah. Roberts. Maybe, yeah. Trying to bridge. Hmm. That sounds pretty good to me. I like it. I like yep. it. Okay, sir. Uh, so so fun to catch up with you. Say hello, connect, and kind of hear where you are and what you're thinking about. Thank you for the work that you have done. Uh, obviously, it had an impact on me, and obviously I had the honor then of writing with you. And 
you continue to help push that envelope forward. And I think that's just absolutely incredible. And wow. so Denny Roberts, Dr. Denny Roberts, thank you, sir. We appreciate thank you. you. It's, it's an honor to be a part of it. Thank you, Scott. Okay. Have a great day. All right. There was a scholar named Ernest Boyer, and he wrote a piece called Scholarship Reconsidered Priorities of the Professoriate. And, you know, I always really appreciated his work. He talked about four kinds of scholarship, discovery, integration, application, and teaching. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. And when Denny talks about his role as a translator, as an integrator, I think all four of these are needed. Discovery, integration, application, and teaching. The practical wisdom for me is that no one of those alone can stand on their own. I think we need all four. And having Denny do the work that he does and others like him, uh, it's meaningful, it's important, it's critical to us better understanding leadership. Take care, everybody. Thanks to Denny. Thank you for the work you do, sir. Be well. You, my friend, have just finished another episode of Phronesis Practical Wisdom for Leaders. To get in touch with me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I can also be found on Twitter and on LinkedIn. Now, if you have feedback, I would love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening to Phronesis. If you like Phronesis, I have a second podcast. It's called the Captovation Podcast. That's with an O, Captovation podcast, where I speak with experts on the topic of designing and delivering incredible presentations. And now, Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.